Good evening, it's Dr. Dan Guerra, an Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. This is a special occasion, as I'm going to uh, provide tonight a corner on metaphysics. And I'm going to name this um, discussion Mere Epistemology Knocking on Metaphysics for a Late December Evening. Today is indeed the 20th of December, 2022, and we're just now proceeding into winter. So let me proceed. When you calculate the velocity and the position of an electron for a common element like oxygen, you obtain a differential equation that resolves into a spherical harmonic function. Wave functions for the simpler hydrogen atom depend upon the relative position of its electron to its single proton. Wave function can be described with the relative metrics of three variables and the three quantum numbers. There's also a rotational function, of course, that has to do with the asymmetry of the field as generated by the wave. The variables obtain a position for the electron relative to the proton in what can be described as spherical coordinates. Now taking the square of the wave function provides a quantitative probability density of finding the electron inside some differential volume centered positionally by the metrics of the three wave functions. All very logical. Now, hydrogen is the simplest of the atomic structures. The magnitude of multiple protons and electrons generating simultaneous and overlapping spherical harmonics, as in oxygen, for example, are far more complex. As there are two unpaired electrons associated with oxygen, we can't distinguish them in any real way except as what can be loosely described as a spatio-temporal placeholder. Now, that relation has got a term. It's called anti-symmetric. That is, electron one is called by convention electron one, and electron two, by convention, is therefore defined as electron two, except it's just as likely to be reversed via substitution. So they are indistinguishable, and yet they are non-identical. This is because space-time co-identifies both categories of that dimension. Now, biological systems are based on carbon metabolism, where there is prochiral possibility. This means there is the either-or realm of preferential sidedness to the arrangement of four covalently bound substituents around the carbon nucleus. The natural world is the preferred phenomena, and there are many examples where one isomer is inactive while the other is fully active, for example, in a biological agency. This specificity seems paradoxical to that quantum theory I was just getting into 
but the more appropriate term is not paradoxical, but really contrarian. So let me get into this a bit. The authentication of living systems down to the level of sharing an electron to generate a chemical bond in a molecule relies on empirical clarity. And that clarity has to be both precise and accurate. However, the instrumentation required to reach that depth of description, and it is only description, still depends upon the foundations of theory that ultimately require a phenomenological foundation based on the senses. Consider spectroscopy, chromatography, and electrophoresis as examples from the biochemical laboratory. Now, those techniques depend upon theories of chemical and physical interactions that are quantitative and qualitative to match our senses. However, their reliability depends upon their relational and modal event ontologies. Otherwise, concepts as populating understanding, the faculty of understanding, would be temporally and spatially unsound. Therefore, critical judgments in research science requires more than measurement. Recall that I've said many times that nature is not a substance ontology. It is an event ontology. As nature is eventual, it is always in flux. In Greek, pantare, all the way. Now, one of my central biochemical views is that living phenomena are far too complex for empiricism plus reason to apprehend exhaustively. Now, using that statement as a premise, I can support it with a complete research scientific output that, if you can think about it, cannot be synthesized into any specific logical argument that is at least specific at any domain. That's because there are far too many contrarian events. Consider that it is impossible for man to create life ex nihilo. All that the human mind could ever know is basically a snapshot of the sensible world. Sensible world we call phenomena. This is the world as it is presented to us via our senses. Now, this presentation is then electrochemically 
resolved as a representation via the transmitted input through the lens of pattern recognition, which resolves as the central nervous system. But in order for that phenomenological world to be a representation that our senses make rationally available to us, the means by which there is phenomena requires or begs for a source. Now that source is outside of the phenomena, so therefore it's not available to our senses. Otherwise, we would just explain all phenomena from what appears to us as nothingness. Reason, of course, requires a cause. So man can construct his world via that cause-effect modality. Without it, there is nothing. But our senses cannot detect what that primary event is because they only measure phenomena. Man does not have, nor will he or his massive computers ever have a complete knowledge of any phenomena. There is only flux and pattern and projection that represents the event. Now, that proposition alone argues against any future true control over any event. The best we have, really, is an approximation. Now, that's all a discussion of phenomena. It still leaves the entire source, which occurs outside of the senses. Essentially, man knows nothing of noumena, the thing in itself. Therefore, the idea that man can transform the human species with genetic and synthetic engineering is not found. It is a lie. Now, at this point, I will draw upon the meaning of terms and their use in philosophy and science. Now, you know that philosophical term paradox is really a classical, contrarian, epistemological invention. And of course, it's attributed to the Eleatic philosopher Zeno, although it was really his mentor, Parmenides, and his entire metaphysical theory of universal oneness of reality, where true change was deemed impossible, that opened the pathway to the idea of paradox. Nature appears at first level of understanding to be well endowed with physical and chemical paradoxes. But upon better mentation and closer inspection, these are actually pseudo-paradoxical, actually only contrary events. For example, 
The adipokine leptin is secreted by the adipose, traffics to the hypothalamus via circulation, where it binds with the receptor and it signals two discrete nuclei. So the binding of leptin to the long form of the leptin receptor results in its dimerization, and that prompts a Janus kinase 2, a JAK2, autophosphorylation, which faithfully phosphorylates the cytoplasmic domain of the leptin receptor and a specific tyrosine residue. In fact, uh, several of them, tyrosine 974, 985, 1077, and 1138, each one functioning as a docking site for various cytoplasmic adapters. So, leptin receptor phosphorylated tyrosine 1138 mediates the interaction with signaling transducer and activator of transcription 3. That's another protein known affectionately as STAT3. You see, I'm describing the JAK STAT pathway, a biochemical pathway of signal transduction. Now, when that occurs, it dimerizes and translocates to the nucleus to activate transcription via chromatin retailering specific target genes, such as, well, such as the suppressor of cytokine signaling 3, known as SOCS3. Now, that acts as a negative feedback signal. Okay. Now, additionally, leptin induces the activation of an SH, SHP2, which then recruits an adapter protein called GRB2 to prompt the activation of, wait for it, the RAS-RAF MAP kinase cascade. Now, leptin also mediates phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase, AKT, activation via the insulin receptor substrate 1,2 and a protein tyrosine phosphatase 1B, which acts as a negative regulator of leptin signaling through that JAK2 dephosphorylation. Now, that comprises a small window, very small, really, of the leptin canon for intracellular signaling, which is presented as a cascade to the system, to the biochemical system, which then is represented via our instrumentation to our senses so that we can describe it. Okay, this is what we find in the research laboratory. So, leptin is the afferent signal in a negative feedback loop that maintains a homeostatic control over adipose tissue mass. And it links changes in energy stores to a set of adaptive physiological responses. 
So the signaling form of the leptin receptor, the LEPRB, is expressed primarily in the brain. And most of leptin's effects on end organs are indirect via the cent that central nervous system. Now we're not finished. Leptin also regulates the immune function via the CNS, the central nervous system, and also acts directly on the immune cells, which also express, as it might chance to be, high levels of the leptin receptor, LEPRB. So leptin regulates the activity of key neural populations in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, where it inhibits the orexigenic peptides, NPYAGRP, that are found in certain neurons, while at the same time stimulating the anorexigenic proopiomelanocortin neurons. So leptin also acts on other brain regions and regulates at the final readout certain components of behavior, such as uh, uh, the feeding response, metabolism, thermogenesis, and the entire neuroendocrine axis, which we've been just now describing, but also the immune function and yet even other physiological processes such as pain. Now, here comes the pseudo-paradox, okay? With excessive visceral depot fat, leptin secretion is driven to its maximum. And what does this result in? Hypothalamic leptin resistance. Now, that seems counterintuitive, as increased adipose is supposed to function via leptin by inhibiting food intake. That's essentially the orexigenic response. But when chronic obesity is reached, that function loses control over the arcuate nucleus. So the response is increased appetite, decreased metabolism, excessive weight gain, and the very high probability of type 2 diabetes and even metabolic syndrome. So this is the paradox of the either or. You are regularly confronted with making a decision that seems simple dialectical, but upon inspection, it is revealed that there are indeed two opposing propositions or a third alternative. In the case of unpaired electrons of oxygen, either electron one is electron one, electron two, or it is in flight. So the event in process called dynamic anti-symmetry. That's essentially a window into what can be described uh, parenthetically as space-time, right? that flight. Now, whether or not it is comfortable conception, the pseudo-paradox regularly appears in nature. And if truth is perpetually becoming, then it must be found empirically. But if truth precedes experience, then it is the rational soul 
that must find the path to it. So I'm going to leave you with that. That's 20 minutes of um, much larger discussion, which I think I will tap into uh, over the holiday season, over the specifically the Christmas season. Um, until we uh, interlace that with maybe a few more lectures on ethanol intoxication and also the main arc of lectures I'm trying to do, which is uh, immunoepigenetics. So once again, that was a beginning of a essentially epistemology knocking on metaphysics, all for simply some light conversation or mentation for a December evening. And I'll leave you with that, and I will say, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, on the 20th of December, 2022, from the Inland Pacific Northwest, along the Clearwater River. Bye for now.